a baby book entry at four weeks old, declared that she needed to be slimmed down. This started a lifetime of a dysfunctional relationship with food. Today's guest, we discuss mental health, eating disorders and suicide attempts. She's an absolute fighter. She's penned a new book, which she discussed a lifetime of this dysfunctional eating, titled Stalked by Demons, Guarded by Angels, The Girl with the Eating Disorder. Ladies and gentlemen, Simone Yen. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success. And you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Welcome. Thank you very much. So I came across uh, your story because my sister-in-law actually said we need to speak. Yes. <laughs> That's how we connected. So you're an author and you've written a book. Tell me about the book. Uh, I am an author and I have just written a book. So at the moment it's got quite a long working title. It's called Stalked by Demons, Guarded by Angels, The Girl with the Eating Disorder. So the book has come about because uh, I've had a lot of mental health issues in the past five years and uh, it was not something I would ever have expected in my life to be to be doing, to either have mental health issues or to be writing a book. But here we are. So I... Um, during or uh, after my first inpatient stay, I think I started journaling. I'd been very hesitant to start journaling because everyone tells you it's a good idea. And I thought, nah, it can't be that good. But I started journaling and for me it was an incredibly cathartic process. And from that I started a public blog. Um, and as I got more confident with the writing, I did a couple of writing courses. And here we are, I've written a book. So, what made you turn your journaling into a public blog? Um, oh, that's a really interesting question, Fiona. Um, I think there's something I, I often say to people, silence equals shame. So I carried a lot of silence and shame with me for most of my life. I'm 54 years, so everything when it fell apart, I was about me 50. Um and there was a lot of things I'd stayed silent about. And when you stay silent in my opinion, it means that you're ashamed about something. There's something you don't want people to know. So by making it public, I felt that I was sharing my story and taking away a level of the shame. Obviously, you write slightly different for a private journal than you do with a public blog. Um, Less swearing. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Damn I am it. not. I am not immune to a little bit of swearing. Um, no, it's more a case of um, being slightly less narcissistic. So when I write in my journal, it's all about me, me, me. I feel like this. I feel like that. This person did that to me. I don't know how I'm going to cope. Um, I write out all my catastrophizing, like you know, the little butterfly that's flitting around in my head's become a fire-breathing dragon. So that's all in my journal. Whereas when I write in the um, blog, it's more a little bit of, it's it's those things but uh, toned down, but more about what I can give to other people as well. So it's it's trying to offer a little bit of an insight like when I experience a depressive episode, this is what it's like, this is what I'm feeling um, so that other people can hopefully either understand if it's not something they've ever experienced or if it is something they've experienced, then maybe um, they feel perhaps not so alone if someone else is 
going through the same thing. And I think it's important to mention that I was concerned doing this because I didn't want to trigger anything uh, having this conversation with you um, and you were most adamant that this was going to be fine. I am <laughs> so I just still w- most adamant this will be fine, yeah. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there to all the listeners if you're concerned about me having this conversation. Someone was like, no, let's have it. This is cathartic for me. So um, I raised my concerns and was told there's nothing to be worried about. Yeah, I find sharing my story has been an incredibly cathartic process. It makes me feel not alone. Um, They do say misery enjoys company. um, And for me personally, I have found that to be true. Obviously, everyone's story and journey is incredibly different and what works for me would not work for someone else. Um, Most people who have big mental health issues don't talk about it publicly. There's such a level of shame and stigma that is still attached to that, which is a great shame. Um, Do you think it's changing? It's definitely changing. It's definitely changing, but it's it's still there. It's still there. I know when I had my third inpatient stay last year, I was in there for nine weeks and I'd spent a week in ICU. Um, none of this is in my book because my book predates the, that particular inpatient stay. But um, when I came out, after being nine weeks in hospital, people just assumed that I would be, you know, I've, I've been released, I'm all well now and I'm fine and dandy. However, if I'd been hospitalised with a physical illness, if I'd had, oh, I don't know, I'm not a nurse, but if I'd had some kind of major heart issue or something that required nine weeks hospitalisation, people would expect when you come out that you're still in the recovery process and it's going to take a long while. We tend Mm. to be in hospital, be it psychiatric or physical illness, when we're acutely unwell. But when we come out, we're not 100% magically fixed. It's interesting that you say that. I interviewed a couple of episodes ago, I interviewed a young lady who was in heart failure. She was 17 when she was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Um, So the end result's going to be a transplant for her in the next five to 10 years. So pretty full on considering how young she is. And she was saying the same thing that because people can't see, um, she does a lot of modeling, she's quite fit, but because people can't see what's going on inside of her and externally she looks fine, people don't understand that she's actually got heart disease. So it's very different situations, but very similar in terms of the perception. I understand definitely what you're saying. People respond very well to something that's, you know, physically obvious. If you've got a broken leg, I mean, people were really great with me when I broke my leg. They were opening doors and they were helping me, uh, which is lovely. I'm very grateful for that. Um, But when I became mentally unwell, I mean, I have to say I'm very fortunate in that I do have a wonderful support network and people were trying to support me. Um, But a lot of the time people don't know how. they you know, they can't open a door for you. They, they're not quite sure what to do. Um, and I think, well, I didn't know what I needed either, really. Well, that was going to be my next question. If they'd asked you, would you be able to tell them? Um, people asked. People definitely asked. Like, um, I have, I'm, I'm so blessed in the support network I have. I have a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and an awesome um, GP. So I, I have all that um, network, and then I've got wonderful friends. Um, but at the end of the day, psychiatric stuff is a bit difficult. Well, I don't know if it is different actually, but um, while it's not a choice, it is 
kind of all in your head. And so there's nothing people can do except just to keep being there and being and listening and saying, do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to talk about what's going on in your head or would you like to just talk about what's going on in the garden? You know, just it's it's talking and having people be around. A lot of the time when people have mental health issues, they will isolate. Um, being around people is absolutely exhausting. Um, and while you do need your space, if you take that space 100% of the time, then it's not going to do you any favours. So there is that fine line between having the right people be around you, but having the space to rest as well. It's, it's very exhausting. Do you think that as we do first aid for the physical body, if someone's unwell, um, do you think that it would be important for us to offer mental health first aid as a basic in schools or businesses or as a general public that can go and do it? That's a genius idea. I am not qualified to say what would be in the, the mental first aid kit. But, um, yeah, understand. The, the main question always is, are you okay? Are you safe? Are you safe yeah. is such an important question. Um, people can be unsafe and you've got no idea, like the young girl walking around with a heart disease, people think that she's fit and well, um, but she's physically got a big issue. People can be walking around seeming right as rain and they're not safe um, in themselves, like, you know, there's the potential for harm. So, are you? Would you be able to if if you were in an having an episode or coming out of um, a hospital stay, and someone said to you, "Are you safe?" Would you be able to articulate if you were not, or if you, or would you? Because of you mentioned, there's a lot of shame around um, mental health issues. Would you f- try and cover that up? I cannot speak for other people, but I can say anytime people. <coughs> Sorry, croaky. Anytime people asked me if I was safe, I always said uh, no or yes, depending on the. um, So so personally, personally, I would answer that question honestly. You cannot guarantee that people would. There are there are people I imagine that would answer that dishonestly. But then there is only so much that you can do for another person um, if they're not willing to share with you. And that becomes the difficulty with mental health stuff. Often you're in denial or you don't want to tell anybody about the symptoms that you are experiencing. So, Simone, are you able to sort of talk about why you were in the ICU for your last nine weeks stay or how this all came about? So we're kind of working backwards, which is great. Yeah. So that's the most or acute stay I'd have. <laughs> we, we could even start at the start and then work forward if you'd like. Uh, whatever works for you. So, um, my most recent stay, well, let's work backwards. It makes a nice change, I think. Um, my (laughs) most recent stay, um, was in March, 2020, uh, and I had taken an overdose. So for the months preceding that, I was mentally so unwell and people would say, are you okay? And I would say, no. And I would say it again and again and again. And people would look at me with great empathy, um, sympathy, and talk to me and say, you know, it's going to be okay. Hang in there. Try and get some rest. Are you seeing your psychologist? Uh, Let's go for a walk. Like they were doing all the things that you would pop into your mental health first aid kit. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody said, are you safe? Um, 
and I, in which case I would have said no because I'd made a plan. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's that. now that sounds like I'm blaming people and this is a big issue is that you never want to sound like people are to blame. We're always responsible for our own actions. But, yeah, I had taken an overdose. Things in my life had got out of control and I didn't know how to get them back into control. Um, and I coupled that with having severe sleep on insomnia. So I... Well, I say that I was awake from January to March, but there were snippets of 20 minutes here, half an hour there. Um, but I would go two or three days without sleep and then I would have two or three days where I had just little pockets of small amounts of sleep. Um, maybe if I took a medication or a couple of extra medications, I might get like three or four hours. Um, but I firmly believe that that, lack of sleep was the was 90% of the problem it was the reason that I couldn't get back on my feet um, where did where did the terminology are you safe come from because I would think that if I had a friend that was um, going through some challenges and if I said are you okay you know let's I thought I would think that I'm doing everything that I could possibly do to help them apart from obviously getting them in to care um, so is that a terminology that you've that you've uh, learnt through therapy? Are you safe? Uh, that's an interesting question. It's a question that has been asked of me in the past by um, mental health professionals. Are you safe? Yeah. Um, it's a very different question to are you okay? Are you yeah. okay is um, is a little bit like the how are you that we say to the girl at the supermarket. Um, we all answer fine, you know, I, are you okay? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm doing okay is most people's response. Um, when so I was it's coming from health professionals. Are you safe? Yes. Um, yes, I believe so. Right. Uh, well, I think that's important to point out because as a general public, I mean, I wouldn't know that. I'm assuming that most people wouldn't know that that's the question that you need to ask. Um, you know, the campaign yeah, is, are you okay? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that's almost become a little bit cliche. Are you okay? Are you okay? Because people have to be prepared to answer that honestly. Um, and, and, well, the same with the question, are you safe? Um, when you ask a question, you, you can only assume people will answer in an honest fashion. But... Um, are you okay? I, I would repeat it to say, I guess, are you okay is a lovely question to say to somebody and then depending on the response and depending how you feel that person is doing, you can repeat it and go, are you really okay? Um, you look like you're struggling or I know you've got a lot on your plate at the moment. Um, so you can always repeat that question if for some reason that you think somebody is not coping at the moment. Um, are you safe is the kind of question you ask when you know somebody is really unsafe. And that might be um, from a self-harm point of view or it might be from a suicidal ideation point of view. Um, if you've got any concerns, are you safe is a really good question to ask people. You mentioned that you started having issues in your 50s. How, how did this all, I mean, most people would think, um, 50s is, you know, you'd probably have it all together and it's not something that if it hadn't shown up beforehand, then why would you have this situation now? Tell me about um, what sort of led up to this and, and what caused it. Um, maybe now's a good time to go back to the very to beginning yep. <laughs> to, just to see the um, 
the the evolution of how I became the girl with the eating disorder. So when I was born, um, and don't worry, this isn't going to take 12 hours. That's when fine. I was born. Well, we've got 12 hours. It's fine. <laughs> I'll just turn it into a, a series. It's fine. <laughs> um, when I was born, I was 10 pound 10 and my mum was a tiny, beautiful woman and she was very uncomfortable having such a big roly-poly baby. I was very healthy, um, but 10 pound 10 is a decent-sized baby. Um, well, that's that's a beautiful chubby baby. It's lovely. I was a, I was a beautiful chubby baby. You want red, chubby babies. <laughs> and I have very pale skin and very red hair and these were all things that my mum wasn't comfortable with. So in my baby book when I was four weeks old, she's written down, um, has blue, ha- uh, blue eyes and red hair, um, is starting to look quite beautiful now. We will love her anyway, um, but I really need to slim her down. And so she started slimming me down when I was four weeks old. And so when people say to me, when did your eating disorder start? I always feel like it's always been there because I've only ever known being put on a diet by the people around me or as I got into my teens and older, putting myself on a diet because I'd learned those um, behaviours. So, But it's kind of the two issues. Not only have did I learn um, basically restrictive eating. So when you put when you're on a diet, you're restricting your eating. Um, and for some people, that might be okay for a short period of time. But for a lot of people, um, it becomes disordered eating, and disordered eating can turn into an eating disorder. So I was on a restrictive diet. When I say restrictive diet, like mum would try and just give me a bit less than she thought I would need. I was the eldest child. Um, And then when my two skinny, dark-haired siblings came along, you know, she didn't want me to have dessert when they were allowed to. And I have to say I was a very rebellious child. I stole it and ate it anyway, but it was more kind of the principle of, you know, they were acceptable and I was mm. not. So there's the two issues. One of the eating, learning really disordered eating habits from the very get-go, but also just a very fundamental belief that everything about you is not good enough. Your hair's the wrong colour. My skin was too pale. I got freckly as I got older. Um, I was a different shape. I kind of had boobs and hips and um, my siblings were very skinny and athletic-looking Um but interestingly enough, they both ended up with their own mental health issues. But um, my sister had an eating disorder as well. So um, I think somewhere in my book I write that, you know, no matter what you were blessed with, it wasn't good enough was kind of the the message that came through in my childhood. And I just want to put in a little disclaimer here to say my mother was not a bad person and I make a really big effort in my book not to demonise her. She did the best that she knew how. She grew up in that era of Twiggy and um, Zsa Zsa Gabor's You Can Never Be Too Thin or Too Rich and that's and um, she'd grown up with I reckon she was eating disordered herself. There were times when she was looking skeletal. Um, my grandmother was much the same. So there was kind of this familial history of eating uh, or disordered eating um, and then the societal expectations that are still there to a large degree for women to look a particular way. Um, to a certain degree, to a strong degree. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
absolutely. And once I'm in my 50s, of course, I don't even have elastin like I did back when I was 16. So, um, you know, you you just add in the nat- natural ageing process. You know, you can only be 16 for a year. Um, so... Yeah, and I have to say body image is something that I really still struggle with. I think if you've struggled with it a lot, then, yeah, it's something I'm doing better with, but I don't know what other people, how other people feel, people who are healthy and have healthy images, body image, Um, but I can't imagine ever standing in front of the mirror and thinking that's pretty good. I think it would be few and far between and I have been many a weight and I think that I've been unhappy at all weights being skinny or heavy um and more my friends are the same that yeah exactly so where where it crosses over where body image crosses over into becoming really problematic um which means basically what are you prepared to do to change your body you know are you going to cross a line um that's when you end up in the eating disorder, in my opinion. What is the difference between disordered eating and eating disorder? Being on a diet is disordered eating because you're not following, um, you're just not following. what, what The goal of um, eating disorder recovery is often called intuitive eating, where if you're hungry, you eat. Your body will naturally, if you leave it alone for long enough, Um, you you might occasionally enjoy a chocolate but it's not going to sit there all day long begging for chocolate you'll feel like a salad or you'll you'll eat this that or the other you'll eat when you're hungry you'll stop when you're full that kind of stuff is called intuitive eating if you're on a diet for any length of time that is a type of disordered eating Um, and particularly for me in my opinion. So I'll just say that I was a musician most of my life. I'm not a mental health or a medical professional. Um, But any type of compensatory behaviour, whether it's everyone always thinks of compensatory behaviours as purging and and vomiting, but there are lots of compensatory behaviours and that might be using laxatives, it could be over-exercising, it could just be um, restricting food after you've you know, you've had a big Christmas Day binge, so on Boxing Day you eat nothing. They're all compensatory behaviours and they're not within the realm of necessarily healthy eating. However, I will say if your life is not negatively impacted by the way that you, with your relationship with food, then it's probably not an issue, again, in my opinion. But when people have disordered eating, they're using a compensatory behaviour, they're dieting, um, they're restricting um, or they're binging. Like when they go to buy one chocolate bar, they end up buying 10 and eating the whole lot, even though it makes them feel sick. All those behaviours, if you're doing it, it doesn't take a huge amount of stress, emotional turmoil, um, something to happen for you to tip that into an eating disorder and it becomes a regular way of relating to food like food becomes your way of numbing life away from um your description of your um being put on a diet and so forth and it it sounds like it was more of an institutional environment that sort of created this unhealthy relationship with um food and and weight 
What happened, and imagine sort of that would continue whilst you're at home, teenage years being, you know, even worse with hormones and school and everything else. Mm -hmm. But when you were an adult and you moved out, what what was the situation then? Obviously it's ingrained in your psyche. You've created this own um, in a monologue then because it's created a, um, and again I'm not a mental health professional either, but uh, a script I would imagine in regards to self-worth. Yep. So what did moving out of home look like for you? So moving out of home, um, when when you're at home, you're controlled. I think that's to some degree. I think that's pretty normal. You're, you're living in someone else's house. Um, your parents try to control your behaviour and I think that's I think that's pretty normal. You, you're living under their rules. Yeah. As soon as you move out. Um, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> Love and, you, Mum and Dad. <laughs> see ya. Um, yeah, so um, but, but that meant that I had – um, nobody controlling me, so I got out of control. The only real bonus was that I didn't have two pennies to rub together, so I really couldn't buy an awful lot of food. Um, but I would have, you know, bought if, – if I had the opportunity, I would have bought absolutely everything that opened and shut and eaten the lot. Um, I was, I've moved out with a girlfriend into – like a share house kind of thing. Yes. So, but yeah, we were really poor. We were selling house cladding door to door um, and I managed to sell zero house cladding. So, um, you know, back in the days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it didn't take, once I got some work, so I was a flute player. Um, I'd taken up flute when I was eight. My dad was a professional flautist. Um, and so I got some work up in Harvey Bay doing some teaching and um, then things got a little bit out of control for me. So every single penny was um, spent on food. Um, but then I would go on a diet. I won't go through and, you know, tell you all the diets, but pretty much if it was in the Women's Weekly, I did that diet because yeah. there was And a there's a lot in there every week. There's a new one every week. Oh, I mean, to be fair, I gave them a good red-hot try for about six weeks, but they're all <laughs> – I mean, you look back now and I think, wow, how silly was that? But you get sold by the picture of the beautiful girl on the front with yeah. a before and an after photo. And it hasn't stopped. They're everywhere. No. no, I stopped buying magazines about 20 years ago. That was the only way that stopped it for me. Mm. Um but yeah, so I would do I would do all those diets, and then of course the diet would fail. I think the statistic is ninety five percent of diets fail. Um, so you know they're only diets are propped up by the diet industry. They're not propped up by any success that we people who do the diets actually get from it. Um, so. Yeah, so there was that. I did a couple of years in Harvey Bay and then I moved to um, Tasmania to um, study at the Conservatorium of Music. You were from Tassie though, weren't you, originally? Uh, yes, I've, I've lived here four yeah. times. My parents moved a lot okay. um, but and I'm in Tassie now. But, yeah, so I came back to Tassie to the con and things were okay for a little while there. So for the three years I did in Tassie, I had a really good set of friends. I felt so lonely all the time and I think that was – a big issue, um, especially once I left high school. I had the two years before I went to uni and I was so lonely. Um, I'd been a few months with my friend in Brisbane that when I went to Harvey Bay, I had no peers. Um, I did take an overdose when I was up there. Um, I don't know what I took, but it, 
didn't do anything in the end. I think I slept for a couple of days. Um, but, yeah, I was sad and lonely. My sister had very severe mental health, health issues that started when she was 11, and so my parents were consumed with trying to deal with her. She was five or six years young, five and a half years younger than me, mm. um, and she died at age 40 um, as a result wow. of her mental health issues. So, um, so there was a lot going on in the family. Mm. and my parents had separated. They didn't manage to keep things together over that period of time. There was so little support, absolutely no support for families at that point in time. Um, so we're talking the uh, early 1980s um, and the therapies and the support that is around today is, you know, gold standard by comparison to what was then. They had nothing. They just had each other. Um and I remember going to one psychiatry session for the whole family where we were all told what our contribu contribution was to my sister's behaviour um, and really that was all I remember from the session um, and my parents were almost pitted against each other like, well, if you'd done this and if you'd done that, um, she would be okay, whereas the reality was she just had very severe mental health issues um, over the course of so her life. So it was blaming rather than constructive. Yeah. I, I mean, mm. I'm, I'm certain that wasn't the intention, but um, but that was the reality. Yeah. Okay. But um, so I was in Hobart and I did okay for a few years and then I moved to Canberra and within 12 months I was bulimic. Now, Canberra was awesome for me. I did finish my degree there. I had wonderful opportunities musically. I met my husband. I had my first two children. Um but I remember still feeling that I was never, ever thin enough. Like I could never be as pretty as the people around me, you know, they were, they all looked tiny to me. They all looked beautiful to me. Um, and then there was just one night at a, uh, a dinner having a, like I lived in a share house with three really good friends and we had a couple of friends over and it was just this really congenial, beautiful, let's have spaghetti and bread and um, wine and Greek salads and, you know, it was a beautiful night. And then someone made just one comment and I thought, okay, that's it. And the comment was not um, malicious or in, in any way, shape or form. It was just the way I interpreted it. Um, and so I went to the toilet and I started throwing up and then I did that for years um, and then I did lose weight, but I was also over-exercising. I was restricting as much as I could. Um, so who knows why I lost weight, but you get all the positive reinforcement like from people saying, oh, my gosh, you look great. Um, you hear it all the time. Anytime you lose weight, people will congratulate you and say, yeah. you look terrific. Amazing, yeah. yeah. And then you think, oh, God, now I've put it all back on again. What do I look like now? Exactly. Um, you look beautiful I was, is the I was answer. But. I was listening to um, or I read an, an article about Rebel Wilson. She's lost a lot of weight mm -hmm. and uh, she was saying how amazing it is that now people treat her differently. They offer to carry her um, shopping and open doors for her and she never had that when she was heavier. Isn't that interesting? It is. It's a different world. Um, yeah. I'm sure like because my, my weight's gone up and down 
a huge amount over the years, depending because I've had a lot of issues with binge eating. Um, and then when I was bulimic, I was trying to control the weight and then I've gone through periods of big restriction. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense that I've gained and lost huge sums of weight. Um, and you are treated very differently when you are much bigger than when you are living in a smaller body. Um, and I know I'm sure that as a musician I was offered a lot more opportunities when I was slimmer than when when I was in the larger body. And for anybody that's listening and, and is thin and thinks that is bullshit, I can guarantee you it is not. Yeah, guarantee that's true. You. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think you have to live something to understand it. I think we can all have issues and I think women are judged on their appearance regardless of their size. Yeah. Um, and there are probably a small number of people that feel comfortable in themselves and they're not at all concerned about what other people think. Um, but there are studies that show that the models that we look at in the magazines wish that they look like themselves in the magazines because, well, one, they're photoshopped to within an inch of their lives, but two, mm. you know, it's just a single snapshot. Um, and in reality, when they move around, they have skin that moves and, you know, they might have a saggy eye one day or a pimple here or something, I don't know. But, you know, they, even the people that we believe as a society are the pinnacle of how we should look don't feel comfortable with the way they look. They wish they looked like the pictures of themselves in the magazine. So, um, And this has been around forever. I'm sure it mm. predated when I was little, but that's just all I remember. Um, and I remember thinking in my 20s, you know, one day this will get better. Um, but all I have learned is that we've transferred the problem from just being for women to being for men as well because yeah. um, it's no longer exclusively a problem for women. Men have quite a lot of body image issues now too. And so. now more things are processed as well. So there's more sugar in food. There's... Yeah, crap. In, yeah, so the nutrition's not as much, so we eat more to get the nutrition. It's a, and we have a more yeah. sedentary lifestyle. I mean, when my grandmother was a young wee thing, she would, you know, walk four miles to get to school. So um, yeah, whereas now we sit a lot. Um, but it, yeah, so I guess our our lifestyles aren't necessarily as healthy. But having said that. If you are healthy and well, then it doesn't really matter if you're living in a larger body or a smaller body. It's it's about being healthy and comfortable in your own skin. And I found that no matter how thin I got, I was always wanting to be thinner. Well, it's never thin enough. It's never thin enough. Um, and if you get to the magic number that you decided was going to be the number that you were going to feel great at, then you had to keep doing everything that you've been doing in order to maintain that number or maybe get it down a little bit lower. So there's no there's no there's no end. It, mm. It's it's just endless. I wrote a piece um, called The Scales of Justice where because I used to jump on the scales every single morning without fail. I'd get up, go to the toilet, strip naked, then stand on the scales. Um, I did it every single day and those that number on that scales determined the quality of my day. You know, what, what was I going to eat? How was I going to be? You know, what clothes are going to fit me today? Even though we all know that you can't gain or lose a size in the course of 24 hours. Um, and so... I had to. I have got rid of the scales because I've been doing eating disorder recovery for five years now, um, and one of the things that I did do was get rid of the scales 
probably two or three years ago. But for a long time, those scales were the scales of justice and they told me how I should feel about my day. And I am a firm, firm believer that nobody should own a set of scales unless they're luggage scales for weighing your luggage or kitchen scales for measuring <laughs> your sugar. Um, That's a good um, philosophy to live by. Yeah. Having said that, I you know, often wish I could stand on a set of scales to know my weight, but I have no idea what my weight is now, absolutely no idea. Um, I could guess, but I don't even bother to do that because what difference does the number make? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's really important to um, put out there, that it's more about, There's, I mean, there's a lot of talk about obesity and, and everything like that, and, yes, there are some health issues, but often people don't understand that there's a lot of mental health elements that come into it as well. Definitely. Like emotional eating, we all talk about emotional eating and maybe to some degree everybody does it, but it's probably a matter of degrees. So if you had a look, I will I will share that my father died on Thursday last week. And so that's very new for me and I'm going through the grief of experiencing yeah. that. Um and this morning I feel okay and this afternoon I'll probably really struggle. And this is an interesting thing for me to be going through while I'm in recovery because I have not been this well for years and years and years. And if this had happened two years ago, I don't even want to think where I would be right at this moment in time. But having said that, I came back from um, a little, as soon as he died, I went away for three nights just to try and, because he'd been ill for a period of time and we'd been caring for him in the hospital and whatnot. So I went away for three nights just to try and regroup and on the way back I stopped at the chocolate shop and bought myself a chocolate and ate the whole lot. Um, it was a reasonably big chocolate but I thought, nah, bugger it, I'm just going to eat it. Um, but the difference now is that I don't need to go back and buy another one and another one and another one. I didn't beat myself up afterwards. I just thought, no, I'm really in the mood for some comfort food and a little bit of chocolate right now is comforting. I didn't do it again. I don't feel a need to do it again. So, yeah, I guess part of me thinks I probably didn't need the chocolate, but then who comfort eats with celery? Um, so, <laughs> and... I don't, so my headspace is in such a place where I don't compensate for that anymore. I don't think, well, I had chocolate, now I need to skip lunch. Um, I need to go for a big walk. You know, I just don't do those compensatory behaviours. Um, I just, I've mentioned exercise a few times, so I would just like to point out that I do think exercise is a really important, healthy part of life. Um but again, it's it's making sure that you're doing it for the right reasons so that you're exercising because you want to feel really strong, you want your body to work really well, um, that you enjoy getting your heart rate up a little bit because it's good for you. If you're exercising purely to lose weight and for no other reason, then I would personally question that. And if you have to do three gym classes a day, I would personally question that as well. So... I just want to bring you back to um, uh, your timeline of your story. Mm -hmm. So you've had your children, you've suffered. Were you concerned that you were going to end up with um, postnatal depression or anything like that? Were you aware of the situation? 
I had wanted to have children since I was a small child myself. So falling pregnant was the happiest day of my life. I was so excited. I had preeclampsia with my first pregnancy. So I gained um, 38 kilos. I don't normally like talking about numbers. Um, but I was this big puffy balloon. I was absolutely enormous. And then I lost 20 kilos in 10 days. So I had a lot of body images issues with that pregnancy. However, um, being a mother has been a massive identity for me and the happiest times of my life. So there was absolutely no sign of depression with me. Um, I was just on cloud nine when my baby was born and my other two babies were born. Um, all those early years, yeah, they're exhausting. You don't sleep a lot. You're cleaning up poo off the walls and whatever. But um, they were – I – I overate during those periods of time, but I wasn't bulimic. Um, I was just happy. I was just happy. I was big. Um, I can't say I was comfortable in my body, but I was a very happy, very happy little girl. So what led to being in your 50s and everything sort of falling apart in your own words? Um it's one of those things when you reach your 50s, everything starts to happen at once. Um, your kids have got bigger and your parents have got older. And um, I had the situation where my parents, my mother, the short answer is that I had a lot of people die in a short period of time. So I had eight people die in five years wow. and I really, really, really struggled with that. Um, because of my childhood, I didn't have the emotional skills to deal with that. So my, um, they call it childhood emotional neglect. So I wasn't neglected per se as a child, but I wasn't given any coping mechanisms for emotional turmoil. So I had eight family members die in five years. My sister's death was incredibly traumatic for me. Um, she died from alcohol-related liver failure and um, I was the one that was like the primary carer for her. Um, that was very difficult. My mother died from cancer a um, couple of days after my sister, my grandfather died. It all just kind of happened at once. So I had all those deaths which if nothing else had happened, I probably would have got through okay. Then I had teenagers um, getting older, and I won't go into their stories because it's not my story to tell, but yeah. there were some incredibly stressful moments there that really tore me apart. I was terrified of what was going to happen with my teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, I was starting to go through empty nest syndrome. I mean, they, were, they weren't fully out of the nest, but they were leaving. Mm. And um, as I said before, my identity as a mother is a huge thing for me. And so I felt like I was losing that identity. Um, and through all this, my husband and I, we've been married 28 years now and we're still together. But we'd been married a fair bit of time and you start to take things for granted and things were getting difficult. We weren't communicating well and I decided that that was it. I couldn't cope anymore. Our marriage was over. We were going to separate so I had my marriage falling apart, my kids marking up to, to varying degrees and all these people dying and having been a carer. Um, and then I could feel the end of my musical career. 
I knew that it was something that I'd loved. I'd done all my life, but I could feel that it was coming to an end. I wasn't really up to teaching anymore. I'd lost the spark. I'd done it for 36 years. Um, and so I was. So I lost my identity. I didn't know who I was anymore. I wasn't really a mother. I wasn't really a teacher or a musician. Um, and I didn't have the emotional coping skills and so within all that the there was one moment where I remember my brain just kind of snapped and that was when my uncle died my father's identical twin and we were at the funeral and dad laid his head upon the coffin and said my other half has died and when I watched that see it still makes me teary um when I watched that, I just felt just this little snap, like I can't do this anymore. I, I do not have the coping mechanisms for this. And it was shortly after that that I started to self-harm. I'd never self-harmed in my life. I became this 50-year-old emo um, that couldn't cope with anything. And so self-harm and I was full-blown bulimic by this point in time, um, which had started back in 2012 after my sister died or before when she was very ill. Um, so I just, the eating disorder was completely and utterly out of control and I was self-harming fairly constantly. And that pretty much covered my life for about four years. Now, my limited understanding of bulimia is that it's a form of creating a sense of control. Is that correct? Um. I think for me there were many things. I, I can't speak for other people. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a researcher. I don't know what other people do. For me, uh, yeah, it's definitely a sense of control and there was definitely the little child of me going, well, you can't tell me what to do. Um, yeah. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. Um, but it's incredibly numbing. So when you've had your head down the toilet for 15 minutes and you've done that 20 times a day, you feel nothing. You're absolutely exhausted. You've got this flood of... I don't know if it's endorphins or whatever's going through your body, um, but there's none. If I would self-harm or if I purged, I felt nothing and that's what I wanted to feel was nothing. Is the self-harming the same feeling though? Yes, okay. for me, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I've, I believe my self-harm um, process, for want of a better word, was not typical a lot of people get angry and just slash at themselves whereas mine was very slow um I don't want to go into details but yeah. um but it was very much a soothing behavior ironic as that may sound and I'd spent my sister had self-harmed since she was very young like 12 or 13 and I listened I, I knew that and I'd always thought why on earth would someone so beautiful do that to themselves and then one day I just learned that it can happen to any of us. It just, like I talk about it in quite de quite a lot of detail in my book, mm -hmm. um, but I am conscious of triggering people in a verbal yeah. sense. Yeah. So I don't want to go into great details, but yeah. Are you comfortable if I, and I know it's a, um, an emotional thing, so please tell me if you're not comfortable in, in discussing it. But you mentioned at the time when you when you had that moment where you broke and you had that thought of, I just, I can't cope anymore. Did, was there a physical sensation as well that came with that? Did you 
Did, yep. Was it like a – okay. I just felt like I literally felt like my brain snapped, like there was a little rubber band inside my head and it just went snap. And I just – from that point in time – I mean, it was almost like a conscious decision to go, I can't cope. I'm no longer going to be. You see, all my life I'd been the responsible one, the strong one. I didn't express emotion. I was always the person that had it together. I was the person you could rely on, all those kind of things. And from that mm. moment in time, I was like, no, I'm not going to be that person anymore. I mean, obviously I didn't have those specific thoughts. It was just, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I chatted to, um, on one of the episodes, I chatted to an ex-homicide um, detective and uh, they I don't know if it's changed now, but it was called The Rape Squad when she was working there. Mm-hmm. And she ended up with uh, PTSD. It's Narelle Fraser. And she talks about her bottle getting filled up, that, that drip at a time because of obviously the horrific things that she'd had to deal with seeing. And how it was like just her one day her bottle just overflowed and it sounds like that was that moment for you that your that's bottle just overflowed. That's a great analogy. I should steal that analogy. That's perfect. But, yeah, things just build up and you think it won't happen to you. Like you've, I've had a lot of people just indicate that they're stronger than that, that they wouldn't do that, that they've had things happen in their life and they haven't fallen apart and they don't say it in so many words but it's kind of the inference but well, I think that everybody has a, a different size bottle and, it, you know, it just they may not have had as many drops in their bottle as the next person. Yeah, that's right. And don't forget the bottle probably begins with um, how well, well, maybe the shape and size of your bottle is based on how well you learn to cope with stuff when you were a child in those yeah you know in those growing up and formative years or if you've had like psychological therapy has pretty much saved my life so I've learned the skills now that I didn't have in 2015. You mentioned that you had a number of um uh inpatient care situations how long was it from that moment of um your bottle overflowing to actually seeking treatment? So at the beginning of 2015 was when my uncle died. At the same time, I had a huge amount of stress going on and we had a long planned trip to Switzerland and Italy. Never been overseas before with my husband. He, um, no, that's not true. We'd had a short trip to Thailand, but we'd never been to Europe. This was a big deal. Mm. Um, and I I got to the point where I didn't want to go because I was extremely concerned about leaving my children behind. I didn't know what was happening. We were only going for five weeks, I think, Um, and it was all too hard. But we went and it was great in some ways But and it's a little bubble. When you go on a holiday, you're in a bubble. But my Mm. self-harm really, you know, I really honed the skills while I was over there. Um, When I came back, Things just, I've forgotten your question now, but things just continued to deteriorate. Um, Nothing got any better. And then by the start of 2016, I was completely suicidal. I was completely out of control with the eating and I'd gone into, I've never really been anorexic, but I had a huge amount of anorexic tendencies. I'd lost a massive amount of weight. I was in a very, very short period of time. Um, And so... I was never involuntarily admitted, but it was highly suggested that I do an inpatient stay. Um, 
I'd been put on an antidepressant by my GP earlier in 2016, but it didn't really do anything. So when I went into the clinic and I was there for a month, um, the psychi- I'd never seen a psychiatrist before in my life. The psychiatrist put me onto a different medication, which within a short period of time really did help. Um, and then I went, I'd been seeing a psychologist since I got back from Europe, so since about June 2015, and this was March 2016. And she was a fantastic psychologist, absolutely adore her. Um, that was the first time I'd had any psychological support. And then I had the psychiatrist in the clinic. And then when you're in the clinic, there's always daily sessions that you go to, usually psychology-based sessions. So I started to, well, first of all, when you're in a psycho, um, psychiatric inpatient place, you meet the nicest people you'll ever meet in your entire life. Um, and everyone has been laid bare and their life has come to uh, some kind of crux and we're all on the same playing field. It doesn't matter whether you've got a university degree or you left school in grade two, whether you came from a rich background, a poor background. Um, it's an even playing field. We're all struggling um, and there's no judgment about whether you should or you shouldn't be struggling. You're struggling and we're there to support each other. So for me, that was a real eye-opener into support. Never had so much support as when I'm in a psychiatric clinic because people understand we all you don't want other people to go through pain and suffering but it it feels good to know that somebody understands what you're going through even if their exact experiences are different and when you're saying that you never had so much support it sounds like it was okay the staff are there to support but it also sounds like it was really from the other patients that you felt that sense of I'm not alone I learned far more from the patients than I ever will from the staff, and the staff were amazing. Um, That is no reflection on them, but the the staff would facilitate psychological sessions, and they were all different. might be about depression or anxiety or addiction or whatever you were there, whatever the session was, and they'd do art therapy, which I detested. Um, (laughs) But... But you got got so much more from the patients. Um, We weren't allowed to discuss specifics of our own situation because there was a huge everyone's extremely conscious of not triggering other people Um, but there was just this overwhelming sense of you were accepted um, and that people get it everyone in there's got depression and anxiety whether your background is um, you know schizophrenic or whether you're an addict whether you've got an eating disorder PTSD, everyone's got depression and anxiety because it seems to be part and parcel of mental health issues and maybe that's, you can't see me, but in quotation marks, maybe that's all you've got Um, or maybe your issues are more comprehensive but everyone understands depression and anxiety when you're in a psychiatric facility. Was... Was your husband aware of the self-harming? Because you said you went, like, you went away for five weeks with him. Was he aware that you were harming at the time? Um, my husband had no idea that I had been self-harming until I told him. And I'd started at the beginning of 2015 and I told him in April 2016. He had no idea. 
He knew I was very unwell. He was extremely concerned. He knew my eating was pretty out of control. Well, everyone knew that because I'd stopped eating. Um, but he, I was an expert at hiding my arms, absolute expert, and my leg when needed. So um, he had no idea. I will admit he's not the most observant person in the world, but he's not silly either. But I was just very, very clever and manipulative when it came to hiding the um, marks on my arms. You mentioned that the, you learned a lot from the patients in regards to the in, inpatient care that you received. Are you mm-hmm. allowed to or is it frowned upon to keep in contact with the other patients when you leave or is it you don't? exchange any details obviously because it's an evasion of privacy or they don't want you to sort of team up and fall off the wagon together like how does it people definitely I don't know that it's particularly encouraged I don't don't fully know the answer to that question but I don't think it was especially encouraged but I did stay in contact with one girl from the clinic for a couple of years people at the clinic knew that because she came to pick me up for day trips after she was let out and I was still in there um I mean, people do make friends and I'm sure they stay in contact. When I went in, I was very like just insular. I wanted to stay in my room or I went to the puzzle table and did puzzles. I just this giant puzzle of spotty white Dalmatian puppies that was like a couple of thousand pieces. It took me forever. Um, best mindfulness exercise ever, puzzles. Um <laughs> So I wasn't so, – some people would socialise quite a lot. I wasn't socialising. Um, I just wanted to retreat into my shell and not talk to anybody. But over the course of the four weeks, I did come out of my shell a little bit and chat to people. Um, but I was very conscious that I'm the kind of person that takes on everyone else's problems um, and I want to solve them all, mm. which is not always a good thing. You're a fixer. I'm a fixer. That's right. <laughs> um, and so there was just this little level of protection going, even though none of them would have expected it or probably even wanted it, but there was just this little level of protection from me thinking I don't want to be taking on other po- people's problems at the moment. I don't have I don't have the strength to deal with other people's problems right now, hmm. if that makes sense. It does. How many inpatient stays have you had? I've had three. So that was my first one um, when I was highly suicidal. That was 2016. In 2018, I felt that I'd done a lot of work on eating disorder recovery, but I was still really struggling. Um, I still hadn't stopped purging. Um, I'd still go through big episodes of binging. I wanted to restrict. I was going through periods of restriction. So I found a clinic interstate that does um, eating disorder specific programs. And I went and spent, I think, seven weeks in an eating disorder program. So to a lot of a degree, I was um, more well at the time. Um, I wasn't suicidal and curled up on the floor in a bit of a heap. Um, But it was eating disorders are very specific, like the way that they manifest, the way that they're treated, they're very difficult to treat. Anorexia has the highest mortality of any mental health issue at all. Um, I think the statistic is one in five women have an undiagnosed eating disorder. So it's a pretty big it's a pretty big thing and treating it is quite a specialised um, 
you know, field. So I went to the eating disorder clinic, spent my seven weeks there, um, fought the system for a while but was eventually tamed um, and came out, yeah, doing much better when I came out of there in 2018. But again, 2018 turned out to be a big year. I had a huge amount of stress in that year and I didn't master things, but I got better. Like I learned a lot. Every time I go somewhere, every time I have a session, every time I do something, I learn a lot. And at the time it might not be enough to get me over the line, but eventually it all added up because I always had in my head, I'm too old, too old. It's been going on too long. I'm beyond redemption. Beyond redemption was my big thing because a lot of eating disorders are in young people and there is a perception that it's a disease for rich young white girls, um, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, it's mm. a serious, it's a serious mental health issue. Um, and if um, it will often start when you're quite young, it started for me when I was quite young, but unless it's treated when you're quite young, then it will continue when you're not quite young. Um, it's interesting though, that you said that you sought the treatment yourself interstate and then you fought the system what did that fight look like and why did you fight it? I think so there were a couple of issues there. One, I wasn't anorexic. So I'm nearly um, entirely surrounded by young anorexic girls. So I guess part of me was thinking, well, my case is different, mm-hmm. which is not. Um, anorexia and bulimia have a lot of crossover. Um, the fact that they were slimmer than me really was completely irrelevant, but I felt that it was I felt it was a big issue and therefore what they had to do and what I had to do shouldn't be the same. But also I had a lap band. I had a lap band installed in 2012. I'm not sure if installed is the right word. Um, and so <laughs> We'll that go was, with installed. <laughs> <laughs> and that was causing me huge. So that, that had been one of the catalysts for the um, huge escalation of my bulimia. Um, and I could not comply with the program while the lap band was in because you have to eat everything on your plate in a 20-minute time frame and then you have to sit for an hour afterwards in a supervised area. So you have to do that for six meals a day. Um, and I could not eat the meal that was in front of me in 20 minutes without having to throw it up because of the lap band. Which, so, so people that don't know a lap band is a coil that goes around Either part of your stu- your stomach or the end of your um, it's not it's not a esophagus, but anyway, whatever. It's the right at the top of the stomach. Yeah. Stomach, yeah. So it restricts food um, going in, and does it make you feel more full? Uh, it, it it does for me. It did for me. I don't have it anymore. I had to have it removed because I damaged it. But um, it did for me. But I have had people say it doesn't. So I don't know. It, it mm. is meant to affect the hunger hormones because there is that pressure there all the time. But the other thing with it is that it's actually a silicon band that they can inflate with um, a meal or two of water or saline, whatever they pop into it. Um, and so I think my band had five or six mils of water. Sounds like nothing, doesn't it? It's not even a teaspoon. But anyway, that makes a big difference. So while I was in the clinic, I eventually gave in and said, well, I'll have the band drained, which theoretically should have meant that I would have no trouble eating, that it would be exactly as if I had no, um, uh, what do you call it, no no lap band in at all. Restrictions, yeah. Yeah, but it didn't work that way. I still, the whole time I was there I, conti- I struggled to be able to eat the food within a 20-minute 
time frame. So when I say I battled the system, I think that was that was kind of the big issue is that, A, I didn't feel like I was like the other girls, so I shouldn't be subject to the same rules, um, and, B, I was fighting the lap band the whole time. But an eating disorder clinic is very, very rule-based. It's very specific, and you either comply with the program or you leave the program. There's no right. No so the, so they, they weren't saying, okay, you've got this lap band in, installed um, and therefore we need to give her more time to eat. It's just like you've got 20 minutes, you comply or not. Correct, yeah. Right. And so it took me a while. It took me about a week or 10 days to go, all right, okay, I'll get it drained. I think they were waiting for me to say to say that. Um, and the, you, you don't have a huge amount of choice with your meals either. You could tick that you're allergic to peanuts or that you really hate Brussels sprouts or something. But aside from that, a meal would just turn up and you would have to eat it. And there are some particular foods that just get stuck like Brussels sprouts got stuck and they turned up on my plate one day and I haven't, I mean, I actually don't mind Brussels sprouts, but I knew I couldn't eat them. I just took one look mm. at them and went, well, no chance they're going down. So I either sit here and stare at the food in silence for 20 minutes or I eat it and throw up afterwards. Um, and if you didn't eat your meal, then you had to have a supplement afterwards, which was okay. They're like chocolate milkshakes that somebody ruined. Um so, yeah, so the, the eating disorder clinic was a major turning point for me and it was a very difficult time. And, again, I met beautiful people in there. So that was 2018? 18. Yep, Okay. 2018. Okay, for seven weeks. So after that you come home? Came home and then... Um, can't remember what month I came home, but in June, my husband and I, it sounds like we're big travellers now, but um, we went overseas for three months. Like these are the only two trips we've taken, but anyway. Um, and so there was a lot of preparation for that. Mm. Um, my house flooded just before we oh went no. overseas, like completely flooded. We had to gut the entire downstairs. Oh, no. Um, was it a pipe or was it natural? No, it was flood rain. Um, half of Hobart flooded that particular night Um, and my husband was told that he had to have heart surgery in Melbourne we live in Tasmania before we went or insurance wouldn't cover him so he needed um, I can't remember what it was called but anyway he had to be done in Melbourne so I had all these things going on and it was very stressful and I was kind of hanging in there doing all the food rules and following the food plan they send you home from an eating disorder clinic with a food plan which is specifically worked out for you with a dietitian and I saw the dietitian in Hobart and made sure it was all on track so I was doing pretty well with a food plan um, and I actually did pretty well with that all through Europe I didn't always get it perfect but life's not about being perfect um, but I was starting to get really stressed so the self-harm was not abating So rather than using the food and the purging and stuff, I was just using the self-harm to – it's just a really ineffective – well, sorry, it's ineffective. It's a really maladaptive way of coping with emotions and I had a huge amount of emotional stuff happening right before we went overseas. Mm. Then we were overseas and we had the most fabulous, fabulous time. We're still paying for it financially but um, part of me thinks it was worth it every Where did you go? Uh, 
well, do you have another hour? <laughs> uh, we went to the UK, um, UK, Jordan, Turkey, um, Poland, Germany, France, Portugal, Italy. I'm sure there were some others in between, but yeah, we so had most this, of Europe. Yeah, we did a fair chunk of it. Fair Good chunk of it. Um, it was a it was a trip of a lifetime, and that's how it was designed. I'd had an inheritance after my grandmother died, and um, we used use that to go overseas so um don't know if she would have approved but um doesn't matter i toast i toast her for (laughs) having provided such amazing memories like i don't regret a minute of it good um and so yeah came back from there in october 2018 and i mean to be honest things were pretty up and down like i was kind of getting better i was kind of getting worse i was still self-harming but not all the time I would go weeks and maybe months where I didn't do it I was still purging a little bit um so that that pretty much covered most of 2019 my sleep was getting much worse and sleep became a really big big issue and then as I said before 2020 rolled around I stopped sleeping everything got out of control and I ended up back in the clinic what was causing your extreme insomnia? Was it linked to the eating disorder as well? Uh, no, no. Okay. I just, I actually write about insomnia because I'm so good at it for um, a website. I've got restless leg syndrome, which I know a lot of people think, oh, I've got that too and it's not a big deal. Um, but mine's really severe, like really, really severe. You can't see me at the moment, but my foot just jiggles away continuously. But I get a lot of pain with that and I, I will not sleep at all if when my legs are restless. It's really awful. So I do have medication that manages that very well and I've had that for about 12 years or so, 15 years. Um, but I have normal insomnia as well, which is related to probably related to anxiety. I had a um, sleep study done and they said that I'm in hyperarousal 24-7, so my brain pretty much never switches off. Um, so managing sleep is a big thing for me. And I'd been again and again to um, to the doctor and then to the psychiatrist saying I need to deal with the sleep, I'm not sleeping, and they would put me on different psychiatric medications which are often used for in a very low dose used for sleep. Um, but what I didn't know and I guess the psychiatrist didn't know was that they always make restless legs worse. So something that was meant to give me a great night's sleep would keep me awake for three nights. Um So I was really struggling with that and I guess I got to the point where I had pillow anxiety. If I looked at my pillow, my heart rate would start to pound and I'd get sweaty like I just couldn't even look at the pillow. So I didn't even go to bed. I would just stay downstairs in the lounge room. Um, But when I went into the clinic at the start of 2020, it was the first thing they wanted to deal with was to really nut down and figure out how to get me sleeping. And they had me on massive amounts of this, that and the other Um, you know by then I already knew that most psychiatric medications were bad for sleep sorry were bad for restless legs medication uh, restless leg syndrome and um, so I knew that so they weren't experimenting with things that we knew would make it worse so they were giving me this they were giving me that Um, and by the time I left the clinic nine weeks later I was down to just my normal restless legs medication plus one tablet And I was sleeping well and I'm still doing that and it's working really well. And, like, I'll still have the occasional dodgy night. Um, 
but I think that's pretty normal. So, well, that's that's fantastic though because sleep is so important. So important. I've slept badly my entire life, but like everything else in life, it gets worse as you get older. Yeah. Um, and I'm like I'm now in a position where I I lived for weeks and months and years on end with no sleep or very very little sleep, and people would say to me, "How do you cope?" Because I'd say, "Oh." You know, I only slept between half past one and a quarter past two last night. And they'd go, well, how do you cope? How are you functioning? I'd go, well, what, what, you know, well, is there another option? Um, but now I find I can't, like if I have a very bad night's sleep, I find myself really struggling to do anything the next day. So I've kind of done this after having sleep for such a, you know, I've been sleeping well since about April last year, so coming up on a year. I don't manage sleeplessness as well as I used to, which I, which I'm putting down to being a good thing. So my body's not mm. used to um, just sleep deprivation. Yeah, I, I mean, what you experienced and what you described is like so full on. I'm surprised they just didn't put you in hospital and sedate you and knock you out for a couple of days with the sleeping. Yeah. Um. Is that a thing? Do they do that know. to people? I don't know. I'm not a medical professional. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. Uh, I mean, certainly um, my psychologist and my GP uh, were fully aware of my insomnia and we had been trying different things. I would sometimes double my restless legs medication in the hope that it would help. Um, it usually didn't. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't really think there was an option until I... Mm. Yeah, I guess the two. I had two fantastic psychiatrists at the clinic, interstate, um, and they were like determined to work out. Um, they were eating disorder specialists, so because um, I was enrolled in the eating disorder program there as well, binge eating disorder program. Um, so I did that program. So I had an eating disorder specialist. Um, I had a, a second psychiatrist because my first psychiatrist was so old that when COVID hit, I, I went into the clinic just as COVID hit, um, he became a vulnerable person's person um, and so he became like a consultant rather than somebody I saw. I was mm-hmm. diagnosed as bipolar when I was in there, which made a lot of sense to me and so all my medications are now directed at bipolar rather than um, what I had before, but then that diagnosis has since been rescinded. Um, but then someone else thought that maybe it is right. So if I do have bipolar, it's not an extreme version of it. But there was one thing my psychiatrist said to me that made perfect sense because she was going, well, do you need a label? I went, well, probably not. And, and that was that I have emotional dysregulation, um, which has probably come from my childhood. And I t- seem to have a few... PTSD kind of symptoms, even though I've never had a major traumatic event. I've had some traumatic experiences that just seem to trigger me in different ways. So, yeah, forget the question. Oh, yeah, your question was could they not have just sedated me in hospital for two years? I don't don't know. That was just a, I don't know, I'm a functioning moron, so I've got no idea. But I do (laughs) do know that if if you – like it's sleep is so important for a restorative purpose. Like if you're not sleeping, like it can, it can kill you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know through my experience of writing for insomnia and moderating all the insomnia forums that 
there are very few options. Like once you've done all the basic lifestyle modifications and good sleep hygiene, you've been given a couple of different medications by your GP or whoever you're consulting with, if they don't work, there are very few options. Um, Most people, when we say we're an insomniac and we're not sleeping, there are world records on how long people have gone with zero sleep and that's about nine days or something. So wow. an insomniac does sleep, So, but it might just be that you're getting three 20-minute naps here and there, that you've got six really bad nights and then on the seventh night you get four hours. Um, so insomnia is defined by experience and, and what you report rather than being a specific number because even though you're an insomniac obviously you do still do some sleep otherwise you'll be dead in a couple of weeks um but there i don't know there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of treatment options unless you start getting into the the heavier duty drugs which people are very hesitant to do for obvious reasons because they nearly always develop tolerance and dependence um but obviously they're there and, and i'm on them or on one but doctors are very hesitant to get you onto those kind of medications unless it's a necessity. So it sounds like this last day was the best that you'd had out of the three and it's corrected and educated you on a lot of your behaviours. Would you say that's correct if you're the best that you've ever been in your life? I have never felt so strong, never felt so strong. So it was the worst day as in, you know, I was – the worst I'd ever been when I got in there. When I was my eight nights in ICU, I felt like a feral cat that was just caged in this room. Um, But over the course of that time, I made a huge amount of progress. And when I came out, look, it wasn't perfect. I think I had one more or two, one or two times when I self-harmed and I purged once, uh, came out on the 11th of May. Um, But then there was something that happened and and to be absolutely honest I cannot remember what that something was but there was something that happened where I just felt like my brain snapped back and it was like I can do this I'm not going back down that path it's an absolute hellhole I do not want to be living my life with my head in the toilet I do not want to be hiding my arms I do not want I don't want that because it's all just miserable um And I just decided that I was going to do whatever it takes to go the other way. What are those conversations like when you're saying to your husband, I need to go to another inpatient clinic? Like what's, what are those conversations? Is he like raising it with you or are you raising it with him? Um, So, well, I've had three stays. The first one was, it was a relief for him um, Mm. when I agreed to go. The second one, we talked about it because it was specific to eating disorder. So I wasn't necessarily mentally extremely unwell. I was just trying to work specifically on the eating disorder. And so we talked about it for a month or so and then decided that it was a good idea. The third one, he arranged for my stay. I don't even remember the week after I took the overdose. So, um, yeah, he he organised it. So the third one he organised, the first one? The third one, yeah. After I'd taken the overdose, he arranged it. He, he got me to the psychologist. He got me to the GP. He rang the clinic because uh, it was interstate. We couldn't get into one in Tasmania. Um, 
so yeah, he basically arranged. I mean, he didn't do it behind my back. He was saying, yeah. "Okay, you need to get into the clinic," and I would have been fine with that. I, I knew that I should have been gone a month earlier, but anyway, it's all clear. I had for, I had forgotten you'd mentioned that you'd had um another attempt before you third stay. So yeah. Hmm. So how did he find it? Was it recommended? And obviously, we're not going to discuss names, but did he just research? researched on online or was it recommended to him? So my first day was in Tasmania and yep. that was fine because it was local. The second day I'd researched clinics around Australia that were specialised in eating disorders and found one that I was really comfortable with. But it's not just an eating disorder clinic, it's a general psychiatric clinic. And I went back to that one because I already had a psychiatrist there, I already had someone that would admit me and I was really, really happy with it. I think they're fantastic. Um, so it was just automatically go back to the same one where I'd gone for the eating disorder clinic. Okay. Oh, and now you're in a good place. That's the best outcome. Yeah, I am in a really, really good place. Um, I mean, there are things that I accept in my life now that I would never have thought that I would be able to accept. At the end of my book, I write a little thing called freedom where it's just this dream of what freedom from an eating disorder would look like and it starts with just saying, you know, there's trees outside my window and there's birds. It's much better worded than this but there's trees outside my windows and there's birds singing in the trees and I appreciate this um, because I am free from food. That That's just a terrible paraphrase. Um, but that that is exactly what it's like. Every morning I wake and I can see the trees and I can hear the kookaburra singing in the old gum tree. And, um, and I am so incredibly very grateful and I do start each morning with a gratitude, um, which are just things that we all think of as being airy-fairy and, yeah, whatever. Um, but it does make a difference to your day and there are things, if you hear it again and again and again and again from psychiatric therapies, then there must be something in it. And I was mm. a bit of a slow learner but eventually I've taken on a lot of those things. Um, and as I said, my dad died last week and that's yeah, an incredible... Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear. Yeah, thank you. That's an incredible loss for me I adored my dad and we were so very very close I mean he'd been dying and he was ill and it was a release at the same time as it's a loss um, but I know that two years ago I would not have coped with this at all mm. I would not have coped um, and now obviously I go through big waves of grief where I'll just be really upset and whatever but I don't do the compensatory behaviors and that's always the that's always the sign is what What are your compensatory behaviours, what mm. are you doing to avoid feeling? Um, and I just, instead of avoiding feeling, I just feel and then exactly like my psychologist always has said, it will pass, the waves of emotion pass, nothing lasts forever. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I'm doing okay. I'm in the midst of, as everybody is when someone dies, in the midst of funeral planning for Saturday. So... Um, that keeps you busy. I think that's why we plan funerals is to keep busy that first week after somebody dies. Um, so, yeah, because I've had so much grief in the past and to be able to manage this feels like in many ways the hardest loss because it's a, almost the last of my family. So I've lost a brother and a sister and now a mother and a father. Um, I've just got one brother left. Um, but I've... I believe 
that I'm managing it really, really well. Well, I think that sharing your story is important and was one of the reasons why I started the podcast so people could share their stories and give hope to other people that, you know, people can come out the other side and of um, challenging times. And you certainly, uh, you certainly have done that. So I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Your book comes out soon. Um, it's in pre-sales now at the moment, which they can find on your website. Yep. So I've got a website, simonyem.com, and in the pre-sales process, had amazing feedback about the book. People seem to be really excited about it. It's just, it's like everything I talked about today, but in more detail. So mm. there's no kind of holds barred. So. And I know you said that you didn't do yourself justice in terms of when you were talking about the the end of the book, Freedom, but when I was reading on your website the snippet that you have, that simple chapter, the voice that you write in is so easy to read and it's so beautiful. Thank so you. please, everybody, jump on to the website, do the um, pre-sales, and uh, it's you're looking for a publisher at the moment, aren't you? I am looking for a publisher. So the pre-sales campaign is done through a company called Publishizer. Um, and so apparently I have five publishers interested already, but until the campaign ends on the uh, 15th or 16th of Feb, I don't know any more about those, but I'm pretty excited by that because um, I like I believe in this book so wholeheartedly that it will either offer you a real insight into what it's like to live with mental health issues in particular and eating disorder and really poor body image or it will help you understand your own issues if issues is something that you're dealing with. Mm. Everybody jump onto the website. I'll link it in the notes below. Um, Pleasure, Simone. Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 